Oh, I got to tell you another story. That's Glenn Sutton. He's a Waterloo chemistry grad celebrating his 50th anniversary as an alumnus. Glenn is going to tell me about an event that other alumni wanted to talk about too. And I'm not surprised. Maybe you've heard of it. A 1968 protest against the Vietnam War. More specifically, against the use of napalm. To show the violence and devastation that napalm leaves in its wake, student protesters planned something drastic. They sourced their own napalm and they promised to burn a dog. Welcome to a special episode of Uncharted Warriors in the World. Usually we talk to alumni about their career journeys or tap into their expertise, but in this episode, we're going down memory lane. You'll hear from four alumni celebrating milestone anniversaries, sharing what it was like as a student from 1967 to 1972. And of course, we'll talk about that fateful protest, the burning of the dog. Keep listening. It was the late 1960s, and Waterloo's campus was very different from today. Smaller, sparser, and more remote. When I was a Waterloo student 10 years ago, we spent a lot of time in the university plaza. We ate breakfast at Mel's Diner, we shivered in the line for Caesars Nightclub, and we printed reports at Kinko's. I'm sure that many of you can relate. But 50 years ago, that plaza didn't exist. And Leicester Street was also very different. It wasn't filled with high-rise student apartments like today. Instead, there were some single detached homes and a water tower. Yes, it's the one that engineers defamed with their four beloved letters, B-E-E-R. And University Avenue, it was pretty quiet. Chris Fleming, a 1970 planning grad, painted a very different picture from today's busy road. Um, When you say the most dramatic, to me, change, the university setting was the University Avenue. There was nothing built from King Street other than Laurier and a few houses on the, I guess, west side as you went north to the campus. But there were no stores, there were no restaurants, uh, there was no bus service, there was no way to get from King Street winter and summer to the university unless you started hiking with your suitcase. And it was a good two, three kilometers. I could take half an hour, 40 minutes. And if it's a howling wind or rain, there was no, not even a university didn't even provide a bus service. Chris, unable to afford his tuition after buying an engagement ring, saw this as an opportunity. He started his own bus service that ran from campus to Islington Station in Toronto. The venture was a hit. Speaking to alumni, it seems like campus was filled with new buildings that other generations would recognize. A couple of the alumni in this episode lived in Village One, or at least spent time there. A couple of them mentioned construction on a new student residence, too. The university had just broken ground on Village Two. Some of you might know that building as Ron Eight Village, now considered one of the older residence buildings on campus. And Dana Porter Library was there, even if it looked a little different from the Sugar Cube landmark we know today. When it opened in 1965, it was only three floors high. By the next year, there were seven floors, and by 1970, it had grown to its full size with 10 floors. 
But the library wasn't just growing taller. Its stacks were filling up rapidly. By 1975, the library celebrated the acquisition of its one millionth volume. And this growth conjured rumors that Dana Porter Library was sinking. You might have heard this one before. Legend says the architects didn't account for the weight of all those books. By the time the university celebrated its 10th anniversary, its physical footprint had transformed from portables to something more substantial, a campus. Between 1965 and 1969, Waterloo opened 17 new buildings. Glenn and others told me how impressive the new math and computer building was. It opened about halfway through their time as students. Bob Drimmy, another chemistry grad, explained that before MC, the computer lab was in physics. Even though it wasn't the renowned computer lab we brag about today, this one sounds pretty impressive. When I was in grade 13, we came up and the big computer center was at the end of physics. And so we all punched cards, believe it or not. We were punching cards and doing little programs. That's how we learned how to do it. And then they took us all into the back room at the big computer and printer and they played anchors away by the keys hitting the printer paper coming out of the printer. So I was in. I was coming to Waterloo, even if I wasn't in math. <laughs> Glenn remembers taking classes in that lab as well and describes how they were expected to hand in their assignments. It was a process that involved walking around and collecting physical documents. No. Before they built the math computer building, we had to go to a second floor of another building. And in first and second year, when we took computer science first year, you would write programs, but you got these computer cards. You go and type them up, do this, do that, and all, you know, 30, 40 steps, print them out. Then you would take them up and feed them into the just a small program, but it would print out these big pieces of paper, three feet by two feet with your results. And you'd hand that in to get it marked. Um, I don't think they have that anymore, but for a while they did. But some of the graduate students getting a master's and PhDs, they would have stacks of cards two or three feet high. And they put them in and just go like that and go be fed into the computer and do calculations <laughs> for their project. While it's tempting to look back on these processes as analog or simplistic, we need to remember that Waterloo was on the cutting edge. Those computer labs were state-of-the-art, and students had direct access to them. Alumni were quick to point out how challenging their classes were, how accomplished their professors were, and how critical Waterloo's unique cooperative education model was for their future careers. Here's Bob again. Well, these professors were industrial people who came back to teach us what we needed to know chemistry-wise in, in, in industry. And the most best example of that was Alf Rudin. He was a polymer chemist, right? And he had, he, again, he was a, a very prominent man in, in that field, in industry. And he came back to teach us that, right? And again, he, was, he really wanted to get the students to understand him and, and the work he was doing. That was the thing. These professors weren't just, they just didn't come out of school and go into being a professor. Which, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. This wasn't just true in technical fields. 
Brian Van Norman, an English grad, retired teacher, and now accomplished author, spoke fondly of one professor who challenged his writing abilities. Roman Dubinsky uh, in the English department. Uh, I was I was a good boy. I sat at the front. I uh, would handwrite, obviously, because there's nothing else to write on. Mm-hmm. And then in the, in the evenings, I would go home and type my notes. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, Roman Dubinsky, however, um, taught me that I wasn't as smart as I thought I was. Um, I thought I was pretty good at, you know, parsing, um, responding, critiquing. I, you know, I thought I could write a good argument, mm-hmm. and uh, he didn't. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I do have to say that uh, he coached me through uh, this whole thing, and I came out of it much more humble and much better. So the Waterloo spirit we know today was very much alive. In the last 10 years, it's been branded in different ways. The spirit of why not, ideas start here, but it's all getting at the same thing. Be ambitious, try something difficult, build your own path. Waterloo students were embracing this mindset well before many of us ever stepped on campus. In 1967, students spent a lot of time in class, and then they spent a lot of time studying in the library. Alumni confirmed that, like me, they spent hours in Dana Porter, where you have been able to hear a pin drop for more than 50 years. But there's a lot of time in between classes and assignments. What did they do then? Brian spent much of his free time in the campus center. A lot of time, and a lot of time at the campus center. It was very, it was a comfortable place. Of course, you could smoke mm-hmm. in those days. And uh, yes, it was, it was a little hard breathing, but. Um, <laughs> and then, of course, there were those, there were up a couple of some steps. There were those upstairs rooms that you could use for meetings or rehearsals or anything like that. And, and I used those rooms pretty consistently through the four years that I was here. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was just the comfort of the place, you know, and of course the student union was there and the school newspaper was there. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can't, um, that's really it. Uh, mm-hmm. Oh, and of course the bombshell. Right. Right. Very Which important. was, a, oh, very. I mean, we would go there and have jam sessions. Right, you know, okay. uh, five, six, ten, twelve musicians. And people would come in and just listen. There were also hockey, football, and basketball games. Plus, you could catch some pretty big musical acts on campus. I was shocked by some of the names. I mean, Tina Turner played the pack. And then there were the parties. Dances and parties showed up in buildings across campus. The bomb shelter was there, but it wasn't quite the restaurant and bar that younger alumni might remember. But there were plenty of other places to drink and be merry. I've heard of events held in Arts Lecture Lobby, the Grad House, and most popular at the time, South Campus Hall. 
It's no longer there, but the second floor of that building used to house a cafeteria, and at night it would turn into a dance hall. It was a popular haunt for students and community members alike. In fact, that's how Glenn met his wife. Yes, so the dance and food services building up on the second floor there. And um, I don't think, I think it's used for something else now, but um, we met there and hit it off as in 3A. <clears throat> so uh, we went out together and then uh, her, she was born and raised in Kitchener. And then we got married in Kitchener. Um, in the United Church, downtown Kitchener, um, in, seven, in the summer of 72. Bob also gave me some insight about these parties. He was a bartender at many of them and therefore had a more reliable perspective. I heard that there were bar services on campus, and I was a bartender, so I applied and I got the job right away. And, and the boss was Henry Hornberger. He was our boss. He was a, a German fellow who who ran all the bars and <clears throat> interesting story about him was that, you know, the, the big party was the engineering parties, of course. Right. So he was a Lions club member <laughs> and the, the uh, Labatt salesman and the Seagram salesman were also Lions club members. So he convinced the, the Labatt's guy to give us 75 cases of beer <laughs> and he'd pay you a couple of days later when we had the money. <laughs> <laughs> that's a big thing none of the other none of the other uh, beer people would uh, would do that for him so we'd go into the bar with, with a small liquor bar with seagrams because the seagram salesman was there and we would open 75 cases of beer three of us would open 75 cases of beer in two hours or less so the engineers would just, yeah the engineers just lined up and it was three beers for a buck <laughs> Yeah, three beers for a buck. They'd come up and they'd get their three beers because that was the maximum they could have at a time. And, and you know, we'd, they'd have to be open to, to go out and stuff. So we were, <laughs> my I have very strong wrists right still, you know, for popping that many. Yeah, so that was, that was the big party, you know, the engineering parties. But, you know, there was places all over campus as, as buildings grew. Like the time track is not always there, but the... Um, um, food services in the South Campus Hall, that was there. So that's where the big parties were. Fun fact, it was at one of these parties where engineers first laid eyes on their beloved mascot, the Tool. The rigid Tool, as it was known then, made its first public appearance at a semi-formal dance in 1968. No word on what the entry music was then. But campus wasn't all cheap beer and parties in 1968. Like other campuses around the world... Waterloo was host to protests, sit-ins, and demonstrations. Protesters banded together over issues within the campus community, from the price of tuition and books to hiring Marxist professors. Brian was one of the students who joined in campus protests. He gave me a little more insight about their motivations. You know, so I've seen a number of different in, in our special archives at the library. There are some different photos from around that time yeah. of uh, students doing sit-ins in the library or yeah. in uh, different places. Was that a was that a somewhat common thing? Do you then, think at the time? Yeah. Yeah, uh, but uh, the culture the the culture was different. Mm -hmm. um, first of all, uh, uh, it was um, 
far less expensive to go uh, through university. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think because of that, people were aware of the fact that they could continue for a fifth year or whatever um, and, you know, not have any punishing fees at the end of it. Um, but I think it was, a, a we were talking about this at lunch, it was really the culture of differentiation from our parents, uh, the, what are they called, the valiant generation? or The, the silent generation? Uh, well, yeah, that too. <laughs> Um, because of their, I mean, all you have to do is look at the pictures and you can see, you know, that we had rejected, uh, uh, wearing suits and ties and Mm -hmm. we had rejected, uh, um, the fashions of our mothers. Um, I, I think people were more free at that point in, in particular, um, women and i believe they were more free because they had more control of their bodies just uh um the pill had basically uh, been invented what about five or six years before i'm not sure but mm-hmm. you know that allowed uh the women on campus a lot of freedom and i'm not saying this just sexually. I'm saying that it was also an intellectual freedom. You know, once you know that you are, you can be independent, um, uh, I think something happens with you that that enables you um, to express your opinions maybe more strongly. But I will say, I mean, so much of this was just simple differentiation from from our parents' period. Many of the protests went beyond campus issues. The Vietnam War had been raging for more than 10 years, and it wasn't just American students who stood up to protest. Canadian campuses, including Waterloo, saw their fair share of student protests against Vietnam. Chris told me about a walkout that happened in the late 1960s. We had a student revolt because we didn't want Vietnam to happen. And as a result of all the protests happening and everything from the um, folk singers that had their protest songs and the protests on campus with banners and people taking sides on the issue, um, we, two things that year, I think this would be 69, the uh, maybe 68, the um, student was sh- campus was shut down for a day. There was a general walkout. So the whole student body, everybody practically, <clears throat> believed that we should send a message because there were protests happening all over Canada and the U.S. And they were major. They weren't, you know, like how the Ottawa um, truckers convoy came to Ottawa. In comparison, the Vietnamese protests were 10 and 12 times bigger, huge, thousands and thousands. So the campus shut down. There probably was three or 4,000, 5,000 students sitting in the arts quadrangle. Um, everybody knew that 
Dana Porter Library is. You know, the white building. Okay. Well, in front of that, if it's still called, uh, whatever it's called, um, it was overflowing with people sitting on all the walls, all the stairs, all the asphalt. And there are people singing the folk songs, et cetera. It was, but it wasn't just the hippie types because we had clearly people who had long hair, long beards, floral shirts, you know, um, you know, plaid bell-bottom pants. That was not, it might've been 10% of the student body. Most people at Waterloo were pretty square, you know, um, not you know, short hair and, you know, clean shirt and all that. Late, uh, girls wore dresses back then to school, class. Anyway, it was unusual that the whole campus turned out. It was very, very popular. This brings us back to the protest that electrified the Waterloo community, the burning of the dog. Brian, Chris, Glenn, and Bob, all four of them mentioned it, but one of them had much more information to share about the event. As it turns out, Brian was one of the organizers. You want to hear about the dog? The dog, yes. Burning the dog. So, so, all right, um, this was not my idea. Okay. Uh, but Noted. I was wholeheartedly engaged in it. Uh-huh. Uh, so uh, Dell uh, Chemicals mm-hmm. um, was connected somehow with uh, Waterloo's chemical um, department, okay. chemistry department, sorry. And uh, uh, word got out that, that, well, that Dell was making napalm, um, that was being used in Vietnam. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, th- I don't know how true this is or was, but it sort of became a rallying cry that it was that they had, were inventing new versions of napalm at, at U of W. Wow. I doubt it. But that was what this built into. Uh-huh. And someone, and I can't remember who, had the idea that we could get way better press if we went, um, if we appeared to be extreme. Right. Uh, So the decision came about that we should be burning a dog with napalm. The group made the announcement a few weeks before the actual demonstration would take place. And their plan worked. News spread through campus, then spilled over into the wider community and beyond. In those weeks before the demonstration, the community was stunned by the idea that protesters could resort to such a seemingly violent act. At any rate, the announcement was made. Um, It hit the papers across Canada. Of course. And um, about three weeks before this protest was supposed to happen, the police descended, you know, on the campus. And if you had a dog, you were questioned uh pretty seriously you know they were um and when the actual um event happened of course there were all kinds of people but there were really more media and police than than everybody else looking through the library archives the details of the event are a little fuzzy here's what we could gather though it was a cool november day 
1968, a crowd formed in Waterloo's Arts Quad. Gathered between Dana Porter Library and Arts Lecture, people must have wondered what they were about to witness. And as Brian explained, police were present, ready to take action. The media was there, pencils and cameras ready. And there were also students, including Glenn. We all went down there to watch and the police were there, ready to arrest them. I can only imagine the worry and the anticipation when Brian and his fellow protesters entered the quad. But there was no dog to be seen. And they took it out and packed it. Said, here's a dog, and it was a hot dog. It was a hot dog. So we announced now is the time to burn the dog the way uh, U.S. forces are burning Vietnamese children. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we pulled out uh, a hot dog, <laughs> and we did have uh, a lighter with napalm, mm-hmm. and or we had spread the gel, some I think. Okay. Um, yeah on it, lit a match, and up it went. Um, Pictures, lots of pictures Mm -hmm. in newspapers, and then it was over. But it was a, it was a exciting event, and it certainly got the point across. You didn't think they would really burn a dog, did you? I'm happy to report that no dogs were harmed in the protest, and the organizers got what they wanted too, attention for their cause. I like to think of this whole event as very Waterloo. Some might call it trolling. Others would say the protesters were just smart Alex. Either way, Waterloo students have always had a knack for this sort of thing. From student protesters to entrepreneurs, our ideas are ambitious and we like to take the unexpected route. At the beginning of this episode, I mentioned that the featured alumni are celebrating a milestone anniversary. At Alumni Weekend, we gather with alumni celebrating their 25th, 50th, 55th, and 60th graduation anniversaries. If that's you, you're invited to join us on campus Saturday, June 4th, 2022. To register, follow the link in the episode description. Thank you so much to Glenn Sutton, Chris Fleming, Bob Drimmy, and Brian Van Norman for sharing their memories. This episode wouldn't be possible without you. Uncharted Warriors in the World is produced and hosted by me, Meg Vanderwood. Our editor is Aju Chow. Both of us are alumni and staff at the University of Waterloo.